several years ago, this was a popular bumper sticker. He who dies with the most toys wins. That was back in the 80s when um, the, the concept of almost vulgar consumption was the, the highlight. It was all about gathering things. And, and it wasn't just in the world. For a lot of cases, it was, it was people in church situations also. We kind of fell into that, even to a point where there was a, a doctrine that began to be t- taught, and it was called prosperity theology. Um, Wikipedia Encyclopedia defines prosperity theology as a religious teaching that God desires material prosperity for those he favors. It goes on to say that in this theology, people promote the idea that God wants Christians to be abundantly successful in every way with special emphasis on financial prosperity. On the surface, that's okay. I believe God does want us to be blessed. I believe that God does want us to have our needs taken care of, and he does promise that he will provide for us. But that's not the whole idea of Christianity. In fact, if you look at Jesus' life and the things he taught, it went kind of the opposite of that. The question I want us to ask ourselves today is this. Is that how God measures success? We need to realize that regardless what we hear taught on TV or on the radio, the correct measurement of prosperity is not gauged by our bank account. The correct measure of prosperity is not gauged by the vast collection of possessions. The correct measurement of prosperity is not gauged by a person's power or fame. That's not what God looks at. The truth is this. We can be successful or prosperous in the way that the Bible measures success or prosperity, even though we might not have or we might have had and lost the things that the world puts value on. Because God's ways and what he looks at for our lives, when it comes to the end of our life, for God to say that you have been successful, you have been prosperous, has absolutely nothing to do with what you've accumulated in this world. How many, when you read a book, normally read the book's introduction? Anybody? You ought to. Exactly. Teachers say we're supposed to read the introduction to a book to get an idea of the book's purpose. Also, sometimes the introduction, the author tells us what prompted him or her to write the book. Sometimes even in some books, especially how-to books, it will explain how you're supposed to read the book. Well, that's in, in literature that we normally look at. The book of Psalm, Psalms was written over a long period of time by several different writers. And they were inspired by God as God inspired or moved on them to write. And like many books, God also wrote an introduction to the book of Psalms, and that's the first chapter of Psalms. If you read the first chapter, generally we look at it like a separate book of poetry. But in actuality, it is an introduction to the rest of the book, the rest of the 149, I think, chapters. Because it tells us and it gives us an overview of what the writers to learn as we study the rest of the book. One of the things that Psalm 1 teaches us is that we have a choice in life on how we live our lives. The Psalm 1 tells us that there are two choices that we can make. 
We can live a life that's after God's ways. We can live a life that's after our God, our ways. The lifestyle built on our ways leads to destruction. The, the lifestyle that's built on God's way leads to eternal life and heaven and salvation. The choice is ours. God will not make us do anything. God created Adam and Eve to have a choice of their own. He said, I'll put you in the garden. You have all of these things at your disposal. There's only one thing that I'm telling you not to do, and that's to go eat of this tree. He didn't say they couldn't. He didn't build a fence around it. He said, don't do it. The choice is yours. The choice is ours today because life in general, outside of church, let's just set Christianity and church aside, life is all about choices. Every day we make major and we make minor decisions, decisions that often have long-term consequences. At the time we might not realize it, but later on we realize they did have long-term consequences. God recognizes that, and he helps us with those decisions in several different ways, with his spirit, with his word, and with his people. One way that God helps us with his word is to point to the results of good and bad decisions. Read through the Bible. See the stories of, of great people through the Bible. And they're not just bedtime stories. They're not just entertainment that somebody could make a movie of. What it is, it says this person did this in their life. And because of the choices they made in their life, this is what happened to them. And those are the things that we are to pick up from this book and say, I want to live my life a certain way, or I don't want to live my life a certain way. And Psalms 1 does just that. It summarizes two ways of living, a right way and a wrong way. Knowing the ultimate end of the two directions that we can choose in life, it would seem to be a given that a person would just choose the right way. Knowing what the Bible says about the way that life ends and the choices we have, there's a good way and a bad way. We see stories of people all through the Bible that lived their life right and lived their life wrong, and we see the outcome. And knowing that, you would think that we would just always make the right decisions. And yet we don't. With that in mind, I believe that there's something else that we as believers need to grasp, especially in the day we're living, and it's this. Not everything in the life of believers is going to be perfect and without problems. If somebody told you when you got saved that all your problems would go away, let me just break it to you as gently as I can. They lied to you. Okay? That's not the case. The Bible doesn't promise that. Our lives will not be completely void of bad things and situations just because we're living for God. Well, I thought you said there was a right way and a wrong way. There is. But on the path of both of those ways, there will be opposition. If you choose the wrong way, there will be things that come into your life that are going to be bad. The end result is very bad. If you choose the right way, there will still be things that will come into your life that will be bad. But the end result is a whole lot better. And we see that as we read the book of Psalm, that in the end, that choosing to live for God is really the only choice because of the eternal consequences. Let's go to Psalm 1.
Let's read Psalm 1, 1 through 3. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yield its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. And somebody, some people would read that, and they'd say, well, that's a promise that once we're saved, that we're going to have nothing but prosperity. And that's, that's not the truth. That's not what it's saying. It's talking about the end result of a person's life that chooses to do the right things. God began this psalm with pronouncing a person as blessed who knows how to say no. We are continually, as we go through our life, from the time we're little to the time we die, we are influenced by things around us and people around us. And we have to learn how to say no to those influences. Now, that doesn't mean that we're supposed to, once we join and we, we get saved, that we run off in the woods or go hide in a cave somewhere. That's not what it's saying. Well, well, I think I'll go, go live in a cave and that way I'll be away from all the bad influences. No. That's not what the Bible tells us to do. Instead, we need to choose to have a godly influence on those around us. For someone to say, well, I'm just going to go hide so that I don't have bad influence on my life, is saying that what you have in your life is not as powerful as what's around you. And the Bible clearly states that greater is he that is in us than he that's in the world. It's sad that there are those that claim to be Christians that choose to withdraw from society in order not to be influenced by the world around them. The Bible is clear, and specifically Jesus' te Jesus's teaching was clear, that we are to go into the world and be influences in the world. Jesus did not do his preaching, for the most part, at church. He did not do his teaching, for the most part, at church. He did it out among the masses. Now, I'm not against church. That's not where I'm going with this. Don't create a rumor here. I'm saying that our lives are to be our ministry as we go out into the world, that people see our life and they go, there's something different about that person. The way that we live our life influences those around us for the good. And in order to do that, we have to go out into the world. And, and please, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that next Friday night you go down to the bar and get hammered just so you can fit in and witness to somebody. That's, that's not what I'm saying. I am saying that we can be an influence to those we come in contact every day. The people that we sit next to at work, the people that we interact with at the grocery store, the, the person that at the gas station when we pay for our gas. And, and it's not a matter of, of walking up with your Bible under your arm and say, you better line up with this. No, it's not that either. It's simply living a life that people look at and go, there's something different about that person. Jesus did not go out into the world with a big banner being held in front of him saying, this is Jesus Christ. But people still flocked to him. They flocked to him by the thousands because of the way he lived his life and the things that he said. 
And if we will go and, and do that same thing and go into the world to be an influence on the world, we will see that people will be attracted to us or what's being shown through us. We are not to participate in immorality and sin. But we're also not to avoid ungodly people. Think of it this way. If the only people we spend our time around are fellow Christians, who's going to win the world? Who's going to win the lost? Who's going to witness to those people that know nothing about Christ? Verse 1 explains this principle. The writer uses the words, walk, stand, and sit, to describe a person's life. Because that's pretty much when you're not sleeping, that's what you're doing. One of those three things, for the most part, either walking, standing, or sitting. And so he uses that and, and gives an example of each one of those things. He says we're blessed if we don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. We are blessed if we don't stand in the way of sinners. We are blessed if we don't sit in the seat of those that mock God. That's positive reinforcement. He didn't say you're going to go to hell if you, if you walk in the counsel of the wicked. He said you're blessed if you don't. It's about learning to say, no, I'm not going to do that. In other words, another thing we can pull from this scripture is that we see that being blessed had absolutely nothing to do with money or possessions. It doesn't say, blessed is the man who has a six-figure bank account. Blessed is the man that has at least a four-bedroom house. No. We can be blessed, and we have to get this thing out of our mind that God's blessings are strictly monetary. And I know we've been taught, not here, but in a lot of cases, people have been taught that for years, that that's the determining factor of whether or not God has blessed us if we have money in our pocket. And the lifestyle that David is talking about here, or the writer, I'm assuming David wrote this particular psalm, requires a yes or a no. Yes to God's word, no to an ungodly lifestyle. And the result of that decision, back to that decision thing, the result of that decision is blessing on our life. Now, when I talk about living a, an ungodly lifestyle, I'm not talking about how you do your hair, what kind of shoes you wear, um, what kind of jewelry you might be wearing, or any of that silly stuff. That's not what I'm talking about. When I'm talking about ungodly lifestyle, I'm talking about immoral, just, behavior. But here's something interesting about the book of Psalm. In Psalms, wickedness is not even defined as heinous acts of violence or socially deviant behavior. You know what wickedness is defined as in Psalms? Wickedness is defined as being self-centered rather than God-centered self-instructed rather than God-instructed. Well, I didn't realize that was being wicked. If the man is blessed who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, then wickedness would be the one who does. Didn't say anything about some heinous going out and commit mass murder. It's just talking about those that 
Walk in the counsel of the wicked. Stand in the way of sinners. Sit in the seat of mockers. Too often we, we come up with a list of things, and these are the don'ts and these are the do's, and everything over here is a sin, and everything over here is okay. And we look at these things as wickedness, but that's not really all that wickedness is. We can be self-centered and be wicked. We can follow our own counsel and counsel of the world and, and take the advice of the world versus the advice of the Word of God, and at that point we are considered wicked. Verse 1 tells us things a blessed person will not do. And then verse 2 tells us what a blessed person will do. It says they delight in the law of the Lord. Do we really delight in the law of the Lord? Do we really look at the Word of God and go, I love this Word. I, I love the things that are written in here. The righteous don't look at living as a Christian as being a burden. No, they're happy to have they're happy to have God's revelation in this book to show them the right way. And and the writer here says, and they spend time in it night and day. Do we do that? We can look at at, at the Word of God in a couple different ways. And and sadly a lot of people look at it like this is a rule book. All it is is a book of what you can do and what you can't do. And sadly, there are a lot of people that believe that's all the Bible is. It's a rule book. It's full of stuff to tell me what I can't do. Or we can look at it as a guidebook or a map to point us in the right direction. Again, the choice is ours. I choose to look at it as a road map for my life. I don't look at it as a rule book. Maybe at one point in my life I did, but I don't look at it that way anymore because I know it's so much more than that. It's a lamp unto my feet. It shows me the way. When I don't know where to go, this is where I can turn and find the answers. But the choice is mine. David wrote in Psalm 119 and 11, he said, I've hidden your word in my heart so I don't sin against it. I've, I've looked at this Word, and I've taken what it says, and I've taken the, the, the message of this Word, and I've hidden it in my heart, way down deep inside of me, so that I don't sin against it. That means he had to read it. It means he had to know it. It means he had to study it and meditate on it. So that when those things come up, and those decisions come up that we have to make, we don't have to run back and go, oh, where did I see that? Mm, no, I'm not supposed to do that. No, there's something in our heart that says, that's not the right thing. It's a decision. Verse 3 describes the outcome of one who studies and follows God's Word. The writer of this passage lived in a part of the world that was very dry. A lot of it was desert. And he used the image of a tree that's planted by the water. And because the tree was planted by the water, its roots could reach the water that, was, that gave it life. The tree flourished, and it produced fruit, which is what it was created to do. Why? Because the roots were deep. 
Pastor Dennis Magary described this passage this way. He said, though fruitfulness is going to be the result, we see that the imagery emphasizes roots. The tree is stable because the roots are where they should be, right beside the source of life-giving water. We, as humans, if we are deeply rooted in God's Word and a true relationship with God, we will flourish. Maybe not by the world's standard, but more importantly, by God's standard. And yes, again, godly people will have trials. Godly people will still have difficult, stressful lives. But the principle here is still true. The point that the writer was trying to make in the description of the tree planted by the water was that being planted by the water didn't stop the dry season from happening. See, that's, that's where we get, get off into this prosperity thing, and it, and it kind of gets twisted a little bit. The tree being planted by the water is not to make the seasons change. The tree being planted by the water is so that when the seasons change, and no matter how dry it gets, the roots are deep and they still can reach where life comes from. It might be dry as a bone all around that tree. The wind might blow, and it might all the other trees around it might dry up and blow away and not produce fruit, but because this tree has roots that reach down to the source of its life, it still produces fruit. Psalm chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. But not so the wicked. They are like the chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So here in this portion of Scripture, the writer turns to deal with the wicked for a little bit. Now you notice he didn't give any examples of how the wicked live. He didn't give any specific things of this is what wicked people do. He just said the wicked will perish. And the reason I believe that is because instead of doing that, he wanted to teach and encourage the godly people and just simply point out the consequences of ungodly living. He didn't have to get into details. He said, these are the consequences. Again, let's go back to that time period to put this kind of in perspective. At the time of this writing, wheat was a very important crop. I've never grown wheat. I've never processed wheat but I have read about it. After the wheat was harvested, it went through a process, process called threshing. Simply threshing was breaking up the, the outside husk that's on the wheat kernel. After this do was done, it went through a process called winnowing. Winnowing was real simple. After that outside husk was broken up, you'd get out on a windy day You, you thresh the wheat. You break that outside husk. And then on a windy day, you get out and you take all that, that's left down there and you throw it up in the air. And the chaff, that outside useless husk, it blows away. The wheat, the part that you want, falls back down to the ground. Simple enough. Makes sense. 
And that's what they did. And that's what the writer is talking about here. He's talking about the wicked. They're really not going to prosper in the end. Their end result of them is they're like the chaff that the wind blows away. In other words, at some point, God throws us all up in the air, and those that are righteous come down and hit the ground, and the rest of them blow away. Not physically. So we see that the writer's saying that that useless husk on the outside was blown away by the wind. But the owner of that retains the good part and it's useful. So we see that that, that chaff is related to a worthless or a useless life. A life that in the end had no value. The point is this, that there will come a time of separation between those who have lived a life according to the Word of God and those that lived a life according to the ways of the world. The writer wrote in here that the wicked are not standing in judgment. And I read that and I thought, well, does that mean the wicked aren't going to stand in judgment before God? It wasn't referring to the final judgment after the second coming of Christ. The word stand here, rather, it refers to enduring something successful. In other words, the wicked, when it's all said and done, will not have endured successfully what life has brought at them. They made choices. They made the wrong choices. But on the other hand, the, ultimately the righteous will stand successful when judged. If I was going to be judged successful in my life, I would much prefer it to be when I stand before God than when I stand before men on this earth. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being successful in this life. I'm, don't even say I said that. I don't believe that. I believe that if you are worth a gazillion and two dollars, God bless you. If you have a 16-bedroom house and a fleet of Bentleys, God bless you. That's great. Because you can still live for God and have all those things. The only time it becomes wrong is when you put those things between you and God. But having the things is not wrong. Having said that, let me also say that having the things is not a, necessarily a sign that God has blessed you. There's an awful lot of drug dealers that have those things. I'm just saying. None of the results that we see, the result of the, the, the sinners or the, the, the righteous, none of those things are, are automatic. None of it just happens. It happens only because of choices that people make in their life. We recognize that the successes in our life, and we recognize that that success comes from God's care for our life. You say, well, I just never thought of myself as being successful. Do you live a godly life? Do you live a life that's patterned after the Word of God? Do you live by the teachings of Jesus Christ? Have you received salvation into your life the way that the Bible says? If you have, 
then I will tell you this morning, you are successful in God's eyes. I don't feel very successful. Sometimes I don't either. Sometimes I even feel like a failure at that part. Exactly right. But I still know that my God is the ultimate judge of success. The King James Version of Psalm 6, or Psalm 1, verse 6, says that God knoweth the way of the righteous. It's a good translation of the Hebrew because the Hebrew word that was used here, it means to experience or to know intimately or to know intellectually. And with God, all of these meanings are true. When we are living for God, God is not simply watching our lives. God is involved in our lives. See, what it goes back to that thing we've talked about before, that so many times we picture God as being this big being up above the earth that just writes down what we do wrong, like Santa Claus. And we're making a list, checking it twice, and that's going to determine whether or not we go to heaven or hell. It's not the way it is. God loves us. He loves me. God is involved in my life. He doesn't just watch my life. There's a huge difference in watching someone's life and being involved in somebody's life. There are parents that their kids grow up and they literally watch them grow up. They weren't involved in their lives as they grew up. Is God involved in your life? The choice is yours. When God is involved in our life, it gives our life true meaning. It gives it purpose. It gives it value. As opposed to the wicked who the, the writer here says that their life is useless and has no purpose. It's like that chaff that just blows away. Nobody goes and looks for it. It's just gone. And a life that's not lived for God is just like that. It's just gone. It has no purpose. But the end result is that the righteous experience true prosperity. And this is why. Because if we have Christ in our life, our life now has real value. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 10. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. This portion of, of Psalm 19 focuses on God's revelation to us through His Word. What do we get when we look at the Word of God? Do we just see rules? In, in selling, one of the, the big things in selling, I, and I taught sales for many, many years, one of the key things in selling is that you sell the benefit and not the feature. I'll give you an example. If you walk out to a car and you open the door and you go, yeah, it's got power windows, power door locks, cruise tilt, AM, FM, CD, yeah, all that stuff. And you just run down this list of things that it has, that person just about as excited as you are. They go, okay. I remember many years ago, 
years and years ago. I was very young. I was, I was showing a car to these two older ladies, and I had just watched a training film, and had just learned this, and I thought, I wonder if this really works. And I had this lady sit down in the car, in the driver's seat. It was a true story. I wasn't lying to her. And I got down beside the car. She got to the steering wheel, it did this. Wow, that's too cool. Well, guess what? All cars have that. But you know what? If you're the only one that tells your customer that, then as far as they're concerned, that's the only car that has it. So you're telling people benefits of something, not just the feature. And that's what here. We're just having a time with microphones, aren't we? What's what the writer was doing here? So the writer here gives us a revelation of the Word of God. And he doesn't just point out the, the features, he also points out the benefits. He lists things like the law, the statutes, the precepts, the commands, and the ordinances. And if that's all he did, we'd go, boring. But then he comes back and says, and here's the result of the benefits. Reviving, making us wise, giving us joy, giving us light. 
See, those are the things that we get from those things that are in the Word of God. The Word of God is just not some dry book that we read that just tells us what we can and cannot do. It tells us what we get by doing those things. That doesn't mean we follow God's Word just for results. I'm not saying that. But it does let us know that there are results to the way that we live. There are too many people that are supposed to be Christians today that live their life and their, their spiritual life strictly based on results. Well, if I do this, God, then you, you have to do this. If I do this, then you have to do this. I, I remember back several years ago the, when the, um, the book, The Prayer of Jabez, came out. And it was something out of the Bible, and it was a good book, but it was a concept and a, an idea of if we would live our life this way and do these type things, then God would bless us. And I had a lady ask me one time, have you read that book? Yeah. Does it work? Work. Well, if I do what it says, does it work? Well, yeah, but that's really not what it is. And for her, that prayer of Jabez was simply a magic incantation that you say, and these you get these results. And that's not necessarily what the Bible is. There are results for doing the things the Bible says, but we don't do them to get those results. They just happen. One of the benefits of of those type of things in the Word of God is that when we read the Word of God and we see what it, it brings to our lives, it encourages us to study the Word of God more. It encourages us to pray and to meditate on the Word of God. The first chapter of Psalms, it prepares us to enter a world that the psalmist that wrote this book lived over the next 149 chapters. And as we read it, we see it was this, a world of intrigue, a world of suffering, a world of injustice. It's a world where people often lived at their worst. It's a world where things don't always work the way they're supposed to. It's a world not unlike our world. But the most important thing we need to realize is that God's idea of success is a person whose life reflects the commandments of the Word of God. If you read the life of David, who was described as a man after God's own heart, you will see that David had some severe ups and downs in his life. David made some stupid mistakes. He just flat out did some sinful things. But when it was all said and done, one thing you have to give David credit for is that he would say, I will look to the hills from which cometh my strength. Ultimately, he knew what choice he had to make. My help comes from the Lord. The truth is it's up to us entirely what commands we're going to follow. The commands of the world and the ways of the world or the commands of God and the ways of God. And again, let me say, there is nothing wrong with having 
material items. As long as we remember that success in God's eyes is not an accumulation of stuff. God has not promised that if we live for Him in order to be successful in His eyes, that we will never have hardship in our life. Whether they're good or whether they're bad, the things that come into our lives in this life are not the determining factors of our success. If you die wealthy or if you die broke, neither of those has any bearing on where you will spend eternity. You won't go to heaven because you were rich, but you also won't go to heaven just because you were poor. And there's some people that, that think that way. Well, I have, to, I have to have absolutely nothing if I'm actually going to go to heaven. That's not true. The Bible doesn't say that. It's where our heart is. What matters is where our heart is. Jesus said in Luke 12 and 34 that wherever our treasure is, that's where our heart is. We can have things of this world, but if we don't look at those as being our treasure, it's okay. If we have lots of stuff, but we still look at God and our salvation as being our treasure, then the Bible says that's where our heart is. And I will ask you this morning, where is your heart? Where is your treasure? Where are your priorities? Are they in the things and the ways and the wisdom of this world? Or in they, are they in the things and the way and the wisdom of God's Word? Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we'll read it again. It says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Now we'll close with these thoughts. The first chapter of the book of Psalms offers us these facts. There are two kinds of people. We choose to be one or the other. There are two ways to walk. And we will choose one or the other. There are two ends that we can meet when this life is over. And we choose one or the other. And the overall moral of the book of Psalms is this. You have choices in life. Choose wisely. And no, it's not he who dies with the most toys that wins. Rather, it's he who dies to himself and dies to this world and lives by the word of God that ultimately wins. God bless you.